Genesis chapter 41. We'll start in verse 55 and then we'll just roll right into chapter 42. And it tells us, Genesis 41 verse 55. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy again because the famine was severe in all lands. And when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So again, Joseph's ten brothers, Jacob says, hey, why are you guys standing around looking at each other? And this isn't like when you come to a job site and there's just ten guys that they all got their hands on their waist and just staring at each other. That's not what's going on here. Here we begin to see the guilt that these ten brothers had. Again, they were grown men. Most of them were married. Most of them had kids, and they see the food supplies getting shorter and shorter and shorter for themselves, for their spouses, for all the animals. Again, it's not just 10 people living in one house. You're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of people living within the camp of Jacob and his family, and the food supply is falling drastically. And they all know this. They're all grown men, and Jacob says, why are you guys looking at one another, right? Why are you standing around just staring at one another? And many commentators suggest that the mere word Egypt caused so much shame and guilt to these brothers that they were frozen. And now what's happening past and prior sin that is not dealt with before the Lord, it's now affecting not just these ten brothers, but it's affecting their wives, it's affecting their kids, it's affecting their dad. It's affecting Fido, the donkey. It's affecting everyone in the whole camp because these men have unconfessed sin. Right? What were they worried about? Did they think Joseph was still alive? What if we go to Egypt and we run into our brother as a slave while we're out here trying to buy grain? What if he died? What if we go by his grave? What will happen? We don't know exactly what they were dealing with, but we know this guilt, it froze these men from doing what they needed to do to provide for their family. We continue verse 3. It tells us, so Joseph's ten brothers, they went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers. For he said, lest some calamity Before him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And what we see here is that Jacob's favoritism for Joseph, right? He gave him the multicolored dream coat, right? If you would, he gave him the multicolored coat, super expensive coat. The rest of the guys, they're working on the farms in their Dickies overalls. And this guy has a Louis Vuitton suit out there trying to deal with the sheep. And all the brothers knew he was the favorite. And Jacob, he didn't see that problem saying, man, maybe this is what caused friction in the family. No, he just puts the favoritism right into Benjamin. And he says, hey, Benjamin's not going with you guys. Benjamin's staying. 
not only he's my favorite, but you guys seem to lose track of your younger brothers. So I'm going to keep Benjamin with you. You ten men go and get the corn. You ten men go and get the grain for the family. Now all the sons, they go down there. Verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. And it was he who sold all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he acted as a stranger to them. And he spoke roughly to them. And then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Some read this and they say, how in the world would you not recognize your younger brother, right? Well, it's been about 12 to 13 years since the last time they saw Joseph. I don't know if anybody here is 17 years old. Anybody here 17, 16 years old? Right, we have somebody here. I don't know if anybody's 40 years old here. Some of us are 17 at heart. Anybody 40 years old here, right? Around 40 years old. I think we'd all agree there's been a great difference and change within us from age 17 to age 40, right? Not for you ladies, but at least for the guys here, right? There's been a great change. And Joseph's a guy, so a big change, right? Within 13 years of the way he would look when he's 17 as the young buck compared to being a 40-year-old man. Secondly, the dress and the clothing, the way people would take care of themselves as Egyptians versus Hebrews was almost the exact opposite. Hebrew men, they would have big beards, they'd have hair, and they would normally wear pretty plain clothes. Whereas Egyptians, they would shave their head, they would shave their eyebrows, they'd be completely clean shaven. You think they were Olympic swimmers or something, right? They'd be completely clean shaven. And then not only the women, but the men, they would wear wigs. And the men and women would wear makeup and mascara, right? So talk about a big change in Joseph. They had no clue who he was. They had no clue who he was. And here Joseph sees the ten brothers, and there's no doubt who they are, right? He sees them and he knows exactly who they are. It tells us he began to speak roughly with them, but he himself isn't even speaking to them. Later on, we'll see that he is speaking to them through an interpreter. He's speaking in the Egyptian tongue, and then the interpreter is translating and speaking to these men in their Hebrew dialect. But now in verse 9, it says, Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them, and said to them, You are spies, you have come to see. The nakedness of the land. Again, family, this is incredible. A couple chapters back, right? The brothers, they hated Joseph. And we don't know why Joseph felt the need to share the dreams with the brothers. But they hated him even more. Sharing dreams. Hey, you guys, you had your ten sheaves of wheat and all of your wheat. I don't know why. It bowed down to me and my wheat, right? I don't know what's going on. Right? I think I'm pretty cool. That's all I think. Right? We don't know. We don't know why Joseph was sharing that with them. Talks about right the stars, the moons, and they all bowed down to him. And the anger, the resentment that created in the ten older brothers, that as he's coming near to them, they say, here comes the dreamer of dreams. Let's kill him. Basically, let's make sure these dreams are never met. That these dreams never happened. And little do they know by them beating up Joseph and selling him into slavery in Egypt, guess what the Lord is able to do? Exactly what he set out to do. 
exactly what the Lord said he would do. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. This is a common theme, a common verse. We'll look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Great reminder for us. Let's start in verse 24. It tells us, for we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we are. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called, who are the called according to his purpose. Again, family, during this season, do you think God has forgotten about everything? He's on the throne and his plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. They can't be stopped. We need to trust in the Lord. What we should be focused on, what we should be fixed on is, hey, are we in love with God? And are we the called, right, according to his purpose? Are we loving God more than ever? Are we being obedient to God's two commands, right? Love the Lord our God with everything we have, everything we got. And love our neighbor as ourselves. If we're focused on those two things, then we know Romans chapter 8 verse 28 that all things are going to work together for good. And again, be reminded of all the roller coaster Joseph had gone through. Being sold into slavery, his ten brothers hating him, throwing him down a well. Being in prison, all of this thinking, Lord, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what you promised me? Joseph, he remembered the dreams, seeing his 10 brothers bowing down to him. We go back to Genesis chapter 42. And we see right away in verse 9, he says, You are spies and you have come to see the nakedness of the land. If you've been to Israel with us and we go to some of the different gates, the entry points of these ancient cities, they would create a pinch point, right? They would create a funnel where everybody had to go through before they enter the city. And there a judge would sit down and would interview each person and decide, hey, are they allowed to come into the city or are they not allowed to come into the city. And it would be a common theme for people to be spies, trying to find out the secrets of the land or the wealth of the land, trying to find out the goods, the protection, the things of the land, much more so when the rest of the world is going through famine and Egypt is the only country, the only land that has food and power during the season. So right away, Joseph, he begins to test them. And that's what we should see throughout these next two chapters. How do you deal when you have to meet with people who have done you wrong? You should be asking yourselves, hey, have they changed? Have they changed? Have they gotten any better? Me and my flesh, I'll be honest with you, that's not the first thing I think. First thing I think is, oh, let me go over there, right? Here comes so-and-so, they did me wrong. I don't like them, so I'm going to go in the opposite direction. Maybe some of you guys know I'm going to go right at them, right? And I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to see how they're doing. I want to look at them in the eyes and make them feel awkward, right? But Joseph, what he plans to do, what he plans to see is, hey, have my brothers changed? Are we giving people room to change? The same God that hopefully he's changed me, hopefully he's changed you. 
he changes other people as well. And do we give him the room to do that? And do we allow other people to grow and change? And Joseph, throughout these next two chapters, he's going to allow different tests in the wisdom that God has given him to see, hey, have my older brothers changed? Do they love Benjamin? Or are they still just so angry with the favorite? Have they changed the way they treat my dad? Do they love him now? Do they respect him now? Do they care about him now? But we continue verse 10. Right away they answer him say, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies, right? How would you deal with this? You guys are honest men, right? Right there, do you throw your wig off and wipe your mascara and tell them who you are, right? Is that what you do? Or do you wait for it a little bit longer, right? Do you hold on to it? Do you bite your tongue, right? Or do they see you twitching, right? Going nuts. What do you mean that you are honest men, right? But he holds his tongue. He keeps himself in check and he keeps going, verse 12. But he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, saying, you are spies. In this manner, you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother. And you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live for I fear God. Again, this is a common theme through Joseph's life. He didn't fear what his emotions were telling him. He didn't fear the state he was in or whether he'd be in Pharaoh's house, whether he was in Potiphar's house, or whether he was in prison or at the bottom of a well. He feared, he respected God. And Joseph, in dealing with his brothers, he's not saying, hey, you should fear me. He's telling his brothers, no, hey, we should all be fearing the Lord. Our focus all needs to be on a respect towards God. And this is so important for us, whether you're a boss, whether you're a son or daughter, whether you're a parent here. There's some parents that the house is just about fearing dad, right? Or fearing mom. I brought you in this world. I can take you out, right? And that's what drives the house. But guess what happens when mom and dad are gone? Chaos ensues. But now if we teach our sons and daughters to fear the Lord, then even when we're not there, hopefully like Joseph, even if they're in a foreign land with a bunch of strangers, they will still be obedient to God because they fear God rather than men. Another thing for us to know, Joseph, he's not out here taking revenge out on his brothers. We had read in verse 55 how Pharaoh, he tells the whole land, whatever Joseph says, you do. So Joseph, at the drop of a dime, he could have made everybody, hey, kill them all. That's it. We're done with this. But instead, he's testing them. He wants to see Benjamin. And later on, we'll see he wants to see how his dad is doing. Verse 19, if you are honest men, I wonder if there's a little sarcasm there. But if you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house. But you 
Go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben Answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you? Saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. Again, we see the guilt that dominated these ten brothers 12, 13 years later after having gotten away with it, right? They did the big one and they got away with it. Their plan came to pass and yet they are still struggling with this guilt. We can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, there's a great warning there for us as believers and even for non-believers, right? In a season where guilt is being thrown around at everyone, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 reminds us. There's only one type of guilt. There's only one type of sorrow that's important. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, it tells us, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, What zeal, what vindication, in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Again, family, the only guilt that does anything good is godly guilt. It's godly sorrow. It's when you feel bad about doing something and then you do something about it with the Lord, not with men. Because when you're just going through sorrow and doing outward works, it's a waste of time. Right, All the working that we see here in verse 11, it's all an inward work. Diligence, right, clearing of yourselves, having indignation, fear, desire, zeal. This is the work of God. But now when you just have a sorrow, when you just have I'm sorry and you just try to get by with outward works, it's just that. It's dead works. And what it tells us here is that it produces death. The sorrow of the world produces death. And again, family, Jesus has come to give us life and all things pertaining to what, right? Life and godliness. That's what Jesus has come to do is to give us life and life abundantly. But now this world and sin, it's come to kill us. It's come to destroy us, our families, all the people that we hold dear to ourselves. So again, as we are dealing with different things today, different things with our family, don't just try to guilt people. Try to give people the gospel. Give people the good news of Jesus Christ. And as you deal with different sorrow, as you deal with different guilt, 
Don't think that there's a set of magical scales that as you do certain things, now the scales are in your favor and you don't have to feel so bad about yourself. Because the next time you sin, you're going to be right in the same place. So again, for us, Christ has come to renew us, to create us back to life from death, for us to go in a 180 from who we once were. This world, it just wants you to feel bad, do a little something about it, and then keep going. Feel bad, do a little something about it, and keep going. And that religiosity, it can creep in to us as Christians. We can make it more about religion than a relationship with Jesus Christ. Right? Hopefully you don't have friendships or relationships that people do you wrong. And then they just give you a flower and everything's good. Right? They do you wrong and then they buy you a candy bar and then everything's good. They do you wrong and then another flower and then they do you wrong. And man, I'm sick of these candy bars. Right? Just stop doing the wrong. Just stop doing that. That would show me that you really love me. So for us, godly repentance, right, godly sorrow, it creates something beautiful within us. It creates repentance, which leads to salvation. Back in Genesis 42, what we see here in these brothers is they have a ton of sorrow, but there's no repentance. They're not shining the light on their sorrow. They're not shining the light on their guilt and sin. They're continuing to try to hide it. But we see here Joseph, he's in the room while they're talking about all these things. And now is Joseph some sort of robot that he has no emotion? No, we see here in verse 23, but they did not know that Joseph understood them. For he spoke to them through an interpreter. And when he turned himself away from them... And wept. And then he returned to them again and he talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound them before their eyes. Again, Joseph, he needs to walk away. Right? His mascara starts running. Right? He starts crying like crazy. He has to clean himself up. He has to get himself right. And he's broken by what's going on. He's broken to hear his brothers retell the story. Maybe he's broken. He sees Reuben. His heart wasn't as much to destroy him or kill him. Now Simeon, he arrests him. He binds him up before all their eyes. And we see the wisdom in Joseph as he's leading these brothers, right, through this lesson, right, through this test, right. Are they reminded as Joseph, they bound him. And they sold them off to Egypt. Are they reminded of these things as they see Simeon being bound before them? Verse 25, it says, Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain and to restore every man's money to his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feet at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So, quick break here. Joseph, he knew it was all pointless if he didn't get to see Benjamin and if he didn't see his dad. It would all be in vain if he didn't get to see his little brother, his only blood brother, and if he didn't get to see his dad. So here what I see, what scholars see is that he's trying to bless his brothers because he needs to make sure they can come back and they have enough money to come back and buy the grain. He needs them to come back. It's no good just him and Simeon in Egypt for the rest of time, right? He wants to see his dad. He wants to see his brother. And he wants to see also how will they react to this. Verse 28, so he said to his brothers, my money has been restored and there it is in my sack. And then their hearts failed them. 
And they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? Again, guilt, it weighs us down. Imagine going to Costco or BJ's, right? Spend 100 bucks, 200 bucks, 500 bucks on groceries. Imagine getting enough groceries for 10 families, right? And you come back to your car and all the money is there. All the cash is there. The transaction didn't go through. You go back to the teller and they say, no, this one's on the house. I think you'd be excited, right? I think you'd be happy. I don't think you'd be weeping and saying, oh, my goodness, God, what have you done to us, right? What's going on here? Are you trying to kill us? Are you trying to destroy us? And family, again, this is what guilt does to us. I don't know if you've ever been there, right? You know, you haven't renewed your license. You know, you haven't paid your 100 bucks for the little sticker on the back of your tag. And you hear a siren, and what do you do? <gasps> right? You guys are laughing because you've been there, right? So that's what it means, right? The guilt settles in and, oh, is it for me? Am I going to the slammer? Am I going to the big house for this, right? Am I going to get arrested in front of my kids? My kids are going to see their dad on the news. Oh, my goodness, right? All the guilt and it's just rescue driving by and you just go, woof, right? And what do we do? Do we go right away to the tag agency? No, Lord, I got another month, right? I got another couple months rolling like this. Guilt, it has you looking over your shoulder for every single thing. Right? You have a secret you're keeping from your parents. You have a secret you're keeping from your spouse. And they call your name and your heart drops. And Oh, my gosh, did they find out? Hey, do you want chicken or steak for dinner? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Whatever you want, Mom. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. We don't have to live in that. You don't have to live in that constant guilt. The enemy wants you to live in that constant guilt because then he owns you. He rules you, right? It's almost like he's blackmailing you throughout the whole thing. But now when you bring that sin out into the light, you can be freed. And you see the sirens go by, right? As Adrian tells us, as I've been doing better, right? You pray. You pray for the rest of you. You pray for the police as they're driving by. You don't have to shrink down. You don't have to slow down. You don't have to right, change your license plate or something in the back. You can be relaxed because... You know you're in the right. You know that as much as you can do, you're right before God and you're right before men. So again, family, you do not have to live in that. In fact, it's far better for you to not have to live in that guilt. To not have to live with that added shame, with that added stress, right? We live in a season everybody's worried about being worried, right? Everybody's worried about being stressed. Man, we have enough to be stressed and enough to deal with instead of having to deal with hidden guilt, and hidden sin. Bring those things out in front of the Lord. Be freed from those things. We continue Genesis chapter 42, verse 29. It says, Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. And we are not spies. Again, family, many times in the midst of hidden sin, in the midst of hidden guilt, we still have so much pride. We can be filled with so much pride. We can come to church, we're living a double life, and hey, that guy, he was mean to me, right? What a meanie. He didn't say hi to me when I walked into church. Does he not know who I am? Hey, you're a sinner just like me, right? Just like the rest of us. And even sometimes in the midst of our sin, our pride can flare up to, who does my wife think she is, right? Who do my kids think they are? Who does my boss think they are? And you're stealing from them. You're lying to them. 
And we see here the, the pride that is within these men. Hey, he spoke roughly to us. We are honest men, dad, that we sold our brother off into slavery and we've been covering it up for the last 13 years. They don't talk about any of that. They just cling to how good they are, the honest men they are. Verse 32, we are brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, by this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me. So shall I know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. And again, it's tough to be Jacob right now. You've lost your favorite son, your youngest son. Now you've lost Simeon. You think the only way you can survive this is by losing Benjamin. All in the midst of a famine. All in the midst of being worried. Hey, are we going to have enough food on the table to feed the family? And what he thinks is, God, why are you against me? All these terrible things are happening, and Lord, they're all against me. God, are you even up there? What's even going on? And little does Jacob know, right, what's about to happen in a couple chapters. The Lord is going to restore everything. He's never going to have to worry about food again. He's going to get to meet Joseph again. He's going to get to move into Egypt in the most fertile area for the cattle and the flocks. He's about to get blessed out of his sandals, right? And all he can do is whine and complain, Lord, all these things are against me. And sometimes family, in the midst of famine, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of problems, is when we turn to the Lord. Is when we realize that he is on our side, that he's looking to bless us and take care of us. Many times in comfort, we forget about the Lord, right? We're not reminded that we should be praying, we should be seeking, we should be taking the Sabbath, keeping it holy. We forget about him during those times just because your family's healthy, just because things are going well for you right now. Don't forget about the Lord. Don't forget about God. Verse 37, then Reuben, he speaks up to his father saying, kill my two sons. If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave, right? So Reuben, he makes a pretty crazy claim. He says, hey, dad, you could kill your two grandsons if I don't come back with Benjamin, right? That's what he says. And we don't know if Reuben's dealing with the guilt of being the oldest brother and what happened to Joseph. Now at least we see some change in him. He doesn't want to see that happen to Benjamin. We don't know if it's just some outlandish claim that he would never do. But there's two things we see here. Jacob is definitely still dealing with favoritism, right? He says, Simeon, I guess he just became an Egyptian because Benjamin, he's staying put. I guess Simeon, he's going to hang out on the Nile. He's going to get to be on the beach. But Benjamin, he is staying put. And what we see here, right, Jacob, Israel, back and forth, there's a lot of selfishness here, right? 
hey, I know the whole family, all of our families, my sons, my daughters-in-law, my grandkids, all the flocks, I know they all need food, but I need Benjamin. I can't let go of my Benjamin. And again, selfishness, it can creep into us. We need to be careful with selfishness. We jump into chapter 43. It tells us, Now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little food. Right? Poor Simeon. Hey, bro, we'll be back in five minutes. We'll be back in a couple of days. Jacob waits until they've run out of all the food that Joseph gave them, right? And we know Joseph, he loaded up those donkeys. He needed to make sure all of them stayed healthy, all of them stayed safe, so that hopefully one day he would get to see his dad and Benjamin once again. We don't know if Jacob has a senior moment and he forgets about everything that's going on, but he tells him, hey, go back to Egypt, buy us a little food. And then in verse 3, Judah speaks to him and says, the man solemnly warned us. Saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send your brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? But they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him, according to these words, could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? I don't know if you've ever been there. I'm guilty of this, right? You ask someone, why in the world did you tell him that? It's like, I don't know. I'd never think the dignitary would ask me about my youngest brother or say I have to bring him here with me. But then in verse Eight, it says, then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and I will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him from my hand. You shall require him if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you. Then let me bear the blame forever. Right? We see a change here. We see a change here in Judah that he's focused on others. He's focused on the little ones. He's focused on his dad. He says, dad, nothing's going to happen to him. And if anything happens to him, it's all on me. I will bear all the guilt. But then in verse 10, we see, for if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. Dad, you've been stalling for so long. We could have gone to Egypt, made the purchase, and have been back already. The amount of time you have been stalling. And again, family, nothing good comes from just procrastinating, right? We'll go tomorrow. We'll deal with this tomorrow. We'll deal with Benjamin tomorrow. Jacob still had to deal with the favoritism. Jacob still had to deal with letting go and trusting in the Lord. Verse 11, and their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh pistachio nuts and almonds and take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks perhaps it was an oversight take your brother also and arise go back to the man and may God almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother and Benjamin if I am bereaved 
I am bereaved. So the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand, and they arose, they went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the men did as Joseph ordered, and the men brought the men into Joseph's house. Again, the emotion that Joseph had to be dealing with. He sees them coming back, right? Is he looking around? Is Benjamin there with them? Is Benjamin there with them? He sees him. And again, how Joseph deals with his brothers. He invites them over. He's going to kill the fatted calf in a sense, right? He's going to kill a fresh animal. He's going to invite them all over for a barbecue, a patriada, right? Get things ready. This is the way he's going to deal with his brothers after being obedient. After seeing, hey, they still care about Benjamin, at least Benjamin's still alive. And family, when we come to the Lord in repentance, when we finally obey the Lord after maybe 13, 14, 15, 16 years, that's the way he wants to deal with you as sons, as brothers. It tells us, then the man did as Joseph ordered and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house and they said, it is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. Now again, we see the guilt here affecting everything these men go through. Imagine again, you're at the grocery store, you're out and about, you run into Vice President Mike Pence right at the store and you say a couple nice words and he leaves and our Secret Service comes to you and says, hey, he wants to invite you to dinner tonight. I think you'd be excited. Hey, we're going to eat good tonight, right? Maybe that's what he say. But would you start crying? Would you start weeping? Oh, no. The government's trying to take me, right? The government's trying to steal me. Mike Pence, he's trying to sell me off into slavery, right? That wouldn't be our heart. But when you have a guilty conscience... When you have unconfessed sin, when you have that guilt, it's going to skew even some of the blessings that God has for you. We keep going. In verse 19, when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house. They don't even go inside and they say, oh, sir, we indeed, we came down the first time to buy food. But it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, so we have brought it back in our hand, and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks, but he said, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money, and then he brought Simeon out to them. One important thing to know is we see Joseph had an influence on the people around him. Joseph's servant, he meets these men outside and he tells them in verse 23, Shalom, right? He says, hey, your God. He's not saying, hey, the God of the cat or the God of the Sphinx, the God of the Nile, the God of the fox. He says, no, your God and the God of your fathers, he has done this. And again, family, no matter what we've been through, no matter what we've gone through, are we continuing to give God the glory? Are we still affecting the people around us? You own a business, do you affect your employees? Are they giving glory to God? 
right? You work for someone, your boss, are you affecting them? Your family, parents, are you affecting your kids? Kids, are you affecting your parents that your walk and relationship with the Lord would just pour out naturally into them? Sometimes having conversation, but just by your attitude, by your character, they would see that difference and they would want it. Verse 24, so the man brought the men into Joseph's house, gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph, coming at noon, and they heard they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present, right? They got the gift basket ready, which was in their hands, into the house, and they bowed down before him to the earth, and then he asked them about their well-being, And said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive, right? You see the heart of Joseph. It's been a couple years. They ate all the food. They loaded up the donkeys. Hey, is dad still alive? Is the old man still okay? Verse 28, and they answered, your servant, our father is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down. And prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. And now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and he wept there. Again, Joseph, he's not some sort of a robot. It's not some Christian robot. He goes through emotion, but the emotions don't make his decisions. The emotions don't make Joseph's decisions. He's going through all this, and he's not just saying, hey, guys, I'm your brother. He doesn't say, hey, Benjamin, come here. The rest of you are dead. He doesn't do anything like that. He continues to wait it out. He's dealing with the emotions. He has them, but he goes out and he brings them under control. Again, that our decision making, it should be done through God's word, through the Holy Spirit, through the wisdom that God's word gives us. It shouldn't be, hey, I did this because I felt like that. Or I felt like this. Or I started crying. This made me really sad. No, that's not why we should be making decisions. We should be making decisions because, hey, I sought the Lord and... I think this is what's going to bring our family closest to God. Hey, I made this decision. I think it's important I go on this and that because I want to get closer to the Lord. So, again, he has to go. He's crying. The mascara is running once again. Verse 31, he washes his face. He comes out and he restrains himself. And he says, serve the bread. And so they set him a place by himself and they by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And again here, family, we see the power of God. The Egyptians, they couldn't stand the Hebrews. They were discussing to them, and yet who is the second person in command? A Hebrew slave who was in prison. Again, the power of God is to the point that when later on the dad comes, all the brothers come, that he says, hey, don't mention that you're shepherds, right? Don't mention that this is what you do because the Egyptians hate that. Just ask for this land. They don't like it anyways because that's where the shepherds hang out. Don't mention these things to them. And again, the power of God. Verse 33, and they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Joseph proceeds to say, hey, you sit here. Hey, you sit here. 
hey, you sit here, hey, you sit here, hey, you sit here. Ten brothers, right? I'm, I'm not the best mathematician, but those are some pretty crazy odds, right? How in the world did this dignitary know how to set us up from oldest to youngest at the table? So they're blown away at that. They're astonished by that. Verse 34, then he took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any others. So they drank and they were merry with him. Again, Joseph, he's not just trying to hook up his younger brother, right? Each of the brothers, they got two pancakes and now Benjamin comes out, he's got ten pancakes on his table, right? That's what's going on. That's not the only thing that's going on. Joseph is testing them. He's testing them. What happens when your younger brother is treated like the favorite? Have you guys gotten past this? Are you guys still struggling with this? Are you guys still dealing with this? And again, the Lord, he tests us in the same way. The Lord will allow a test to arise, a trial to arise. And if we fail, guess what's going to happen? Going to have to retake it sooner or later. Going to have to retake it. And here, Joseph, he's taking care of his youngest brother. But he's also testing his older brothers to see. And what do we see at the end of verse 34? They drank and they were merry with him. There was no factor. They were okay with it. And we see the fellowship Joseph had with him. There was no animosity. He wasn't twitching out of anger, right? Out of resentment. We see here the love, right? Hopefully he was happy, right? Seeing his brothers growing. They're not the same men that they were 15, 16 years ago. A couple important verses for us to remember, right? There's no condemnation. Romans 8 verse 1. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You're here. You're dealing with guilt. You're dealing with unrepentant sin. If you're walking in the light, if you're walking in the spirit, that's not of the Lord. You shouldn't have any condemnation because you've come to Christ and Christ's sacrifice on the cross is enough, is more than enough to wash away our sins. But now if we are in unconfessed sin, then there's going to at least hopefully be conviction of the Holy Spirit which should lead us and bring us into repentance. And repentance, like we talked about, it's not just doing some work. It's not giving God a candy bar and a flower and saying, all right, God, we're good, right? No, it's repentance. God, I am sorry for what I did. I was wrong. It's my fault. This was my choice. Will you forgive me? That's the road that leads to repentance and restoration with God. And if you're on that road, hey, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So again, family, are you walking in the flesh? Hopefully there's conviction. Are you walking in the spirit? Don't allow the enemy to be condemning you. Right, we already talked about it. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. We go to 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. Right? Maybe we're there in the no man's land. We're in between conviction. We're in between condemnation. What do I do? How do I deal with this? I don't want to have to be looking over my shoulder at all times. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. It tells us, this is the message which we have heard from him. And we declare it to you, that God is light. 
and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I love how simple God's word is, right? Hey, you say you're of God. Are you walking in sin? Are you walking in darkness? A habitual bent towards sin that's unconfessed? You got no relationship with God. You have a relationship with God, you're in sin, hey, just confess and he will be faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You say you walk with him and you're not sinning, you're a liar and you're not with him, right? So simple for us. So again, family, confess, he will forgive. He will forgive. Confess those sins, get right with him. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it tells us, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hey, come to the Lord boldly. Come to him boldly. That doesn't mean come to him loudly, come to him screaming, come to him demanding. The word there, boldly, it talks about coming to him with no fear. Like a little kid and a dad or a little kid and a mom that have a good relationship when that kid needs something, they just ask, right? They don't have to say, uh, right? Oh, Father, thou art in heaven, gives me the chocolate milkis, right? That's not what they ask. Just cheche, right? That's all they say, chocolate milk. They make it simple. That's how we should be coming to Christ. That's how we should be coming to the Lord. We don't need the perfect speech. All we need to have is a broken and contrite heart, and he will not despise it. We looked at Romans chapter 8, 28 earlier, right? We know all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Family, for us to not be worried in this season. And when worry comes, hey, shoo it away. Give it back to the Lord. It's going to come. Those thoughts, those fears, they're going to swing by our heads. But hey, we need to give them to the Lord and keep on trekking. Keep on going. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 and 3, it says, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, he allowed you to hunger, and he fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Maybe you're here and you're like Jacob and you're just saying, man, things can't get any worse, right? How can things possibly get any worse? God, are you even out there? And the Lord may be working in your heart saying, hey, I'm allowing these things because I wanted to bring you here. Sunday morning, 11 o'clock, for you to see what was going on in your heart, that you really think you're an actual good person, or if you realize, Lord, it's only by your grace, and I have a lot that I need to grow. Lord, it's only by your grace, and there's many sins that I need to confess 
I need to get right with you. But he's still on the throne. And his goal, his plan is not to destroy you. It's not to harm you. It is to give you that hope and that future. That's God's plans for us, the elected, the called, his sons and his daughters.